We've been talking this morning about the importance of community with respect to I Love My Church Sunday. But this morning I want to I dig a little deeper. And I want to first do that by telling you a breakfast story. Um, does anybody make their own breakfast? Um, does anybody have breakfast rituals? Because I, I caught myself in a destructive breakfast ritual the other morning that I realised was inhibiting my enjoyment of breakfast. And it was that, I, I don't know, I like to have, uh, especially after we've, we've gone up, uh, walked up Mount Lofty and back, the next morning I like to have eggs because I sort of pretend that that's probably enough protein to restore some of the muscle mass that I've destroyed doing that. And my, I toast, toast the, the bread, I have two rashers of bacon which then sit on that, if we've got any baked beans in the house, they go in the microwave and the baked beans have to go on top of the um, bacon. And then the fried egg, with still a runny yolk, goes on top of that. Yeah. And then I attack it by cutting the corners off. And then the corners that are left until I get to the middle and then I pierce the egg and the yolk goes everywhere and you finish it up. Has ever, anybody ever had a morning where something goes wrong. As you get the egg out of the pan, suddenly the yolk breaks. And you put it on there and it's going everywhere. And it's like, it spoiled my breakfast. I, how can I enjoy this? Because the egg, the, the yolk broke. And this happened to me the other morning in the middle of my fury as I was eating the rest of my breakfast grumpily thinking, this is terrible. This is I, oh, why does this always happen to me? Anybody ever done that? <laughs> Suddenly I, I stopped and I looked at, looked at my fork and I thought, do you know what? It doesn't taste any different. <laughs> I thought, I have been obsessing over something which actually does not change how my breakfast tastes. But because I haven't been able to see past that, it has actually altered my enjoyment of that breakfast. So the next morning, do you know what I did? I put the baked beans on first. I stuck the bacon on top. And when I'd finished, I cut the whole thing in half and then cut it up randomly. And guess what? It tasted just the same. And sometimes, the reason I'm telling you that story is sometimes we listen to the Word of God. We want to do what the Word of God tells us to do. We want to be involved in what God has for us as part of His community. But we are stuck in the fact that we want to do things a certain way and we believe that if we don't do it that way, then we're not going to enjoy the experience. I'm here to tell you this morning that that is balderdash and that we actually need to free ourselves from some of the processes and actually take a fresh approach to what the Word of God is trying to tell us. And so I want to start off, I've called this, this message Humble Beginnings because we think community is important at least I hope we do. Is it? Yep. Uh, but the, does God? And how, do, how does he show that? I mean, spoiler alert, yes, God does think that community is important. But how does God start community in the Bible? And what does a God-inspired community actually look like? So we get our first clues, funnily enough, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2.18, God starts community. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So although this is the very beginning of community, and there are, after all, only two of them, 
God states that he's providing a helper, which implies that there is going to be something that they need help with. So a task, a job, a goal, something to achieve. And so the fact that God's provided a helper, guess what means? That it's going to require more than one person. So indeed, God, the first task that God gives them is way beyond their capability and understanding. Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. That's not beyond their capability. <laughs> Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground, etc. Often we've been told that it's God's blessing which separates us from the animals and gives us the authority to rule alongside God. But I discovered if we look a few verses earlier, God gave the same blessing to the animals. Verse 22 says, Then God blessed them, and saying, Be fruitful and multiply, let the fish fill the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth, etc., etc. We don't even get the first blessing. But what we do get is a command to reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Most important, those. And we can see that here, God is actually taking a big risk. He has given a community of two, with no track record, co-rulership over all creation. That's a big step. The first challenge, funnily enough, that humankind faces is an attempt to reverse that order. We've been given authority to reign over the animals and the first thing that happens is an animal attempts to take over. Now we know that it wasn't the animal so it's not, let's not anthropomorphize, it's too much. That's your homework for today, go and look up that word. Um, but the serpent deceives the humans and our relationship with God is forever fractured. However, all is not lost. God's desire for community continues to be a consistent theme that weaves its way through the Old Testament and comes to the forefront again a few books later in the Exodus story where we see a much larger community rescued by God and set on a path to the promised land. Tension mounts and rides away. Sorry, I'm getting the dad jokes out early this year. Now, I don't know where, who's, who's read the Exodus story? Yeah. A few people, good, well there's your homework again. Uh, read some of the Bible. <laughs> but if you have read it, you'll notice that this community develops some interesting dynamics due to this tension between God's vision for this community and the vision that the Israelites have for their community. And the first thing that we know is the need for structure. God has appointed Moses the leader of the community. But he ends up just about killing himself, trying to do everything, and is rescued by his father-in-law, Jethro. And in Exodus 18.21, we get Jethro's wisdom. He says, select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Why did they put that last bit in, I wonder? Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,150 and 10. Now, all this sounds good advice, but we need to ask the question, why was this leadership structure put in place? Was it to guide the community into good works, help them achieve their goals, or put their good ideas into practice? No. The structure was there to sort out their grievances and put a stop to their constant complaining. 
as the story unfolds, we see them going from a community that is willing to take high risks. After all, they, they escaped from Egypt. That was a fairly risky thing to do. They went to a low-risk community where they got a report from 12 spies. Sounded a bit daunting, so they said, ah, promised land, forget it. They were a high-faith community. They trusted in Yahweh. They trusted in Moses to save them from slavery and take them into the promised land. But along the way, somehow their faith got fractured. They, they put up golden calves. They, they started rebelling against Moses' leadership. They went from a place of high faith to low faith. They were grateful. God provided a pillar of smoke, a pillar of fire by night and a, and a cloud of smoke by day. And this great stuff called manna that they could eat. And so... You know, they go into the desert, they think, God is awesome, look at what he's done. And then, this manna tastes horrible. I'm a bit sick of this. It's cloudy all day and there's this, there's, I can't sleep at night because of this bright fire that's going on. They go from grateful to grumpy. Better to be slaves, they said. And guess what? That generation never saw the promised land. It's not enough for a faith community to acknowledge God. We actually have to be committed to community risk. Now what community risk is, we're gonna be talking a bit more about next week. It's probably not what you think. But we have to be a faith-based community focusing on the word of God, the person of Jesus, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Something that that generation of Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years got horribly wrong. Now, did the next generation make it into the promised land? Yes, very good. Did they get everything right? Oh, very good. So that's actually quite important because the, the next generation got into the promised land because they had high faith. They took great risks, but they didn't necessarily get everything right. And we've got, we've got to understand that too, as a church community, we've got to be a community willing to be high in faith, but we don't have to get everything right. We just have to keep going in faith. So where does that lead us? Well, the next community that we know a lot about is the one described to us in the book of Acts. And this is the community that's often held up as the ideal model of the modern church. Now, in Acts 2.42, it describes what's going on. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now the mistake a lot of churches make, in my humble opinion, is to try and copy what the Acts church did without understanding why they did it. In other words, we have to look at the context of their actions rather than slavishly copying their methods. For a start, they were a fledgling community, not a mature one. So they did a number of things. They tried lots of different new things to see if they worked. 
They, their roles were constantly changing and there was a huge conflict of ideas because everything was new. We read stories about, you know, there's the circumcision party versus the others. There's whether you should eat um, kosher food or not. And all of these conflicts of ideas plagued the early church because they were brand new. And while these things are always options, we, can, we should still be trying new things. We should still be changing roles and moving forward. And we should still be sorting out different ideas. But we wouldn't and shouldn't necessarily go about them the same way as the book of Acts Church. The things that we should copy are the important vital signs that indicate a healthy faith community. Unity, generosity and risk-taking. It's also worth noting the difference in the reasoning behind separating out their leaders. And if we compare this to um, uh, Exodus, in Acts 6.2 it says, the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well respected, are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. So can you see the contrast? Instead of having to develop a leadership structure to cope with the whinging of the general population, they had to create a leadership structure so that they could actually improve what they were doing in the community, so that they could actually make sure that people were being helped, that, that there was efficiency in the, in the outreach that they were conducting, that they were sharing, and that they were actually doing good in their communities. The community itself had ownership and was out there doing what needed to be done. So there's, there's quite a, a difference. There's great signs of a much healthier community going on here. And we're going to go a bit more in depth in there next week. But today I want to leave you with a thought regarding one of the ways our thinking as a church has to be radically different from the first century church if we want to have an impact on the community outside of our church community. The first century church was engaged in a battle of external truths. Doesn't that sound fabulous? What does it mean though? Well, okay, the truths that we declare as evidence for the Christian faith are external to ourselves. We believe the truth is written in the word of God. We believe the truth is evident in the person of Jesus Christ. And we believe the, church, the truth is evident from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They're not something we've dreamed up. They're not internal feelings or emotions. They're evidence from an external source that we have examined, experienced, and through revelation found to be true as a community. The people who were added daily to the Acts community came from other communities that had a different truth, but it was still an external truth. They worshipped other gods. They had other beliefs, but they, they, these came from external truths that they believed. When confronted with the power and the presence of Jesus in the church community, they then had a revelation that the external truth they'd previously believed didn't stack up to what they'd witnessed through the apostles and the other followers of Jesus. So guess what? They allowed themselves to be transformed by the truth of Jesus Christ. Today, the church is engaged in a battle of external versus internal truth. What's an internal truth? Much of the community outside the church, and unfortunately even some people within church communities, have been seduced by the concept of internal truth 
which allows people to decide what they believe is truth without having to submit themselves to any outside measure or influence. They base, base their truth on whether it fits their lifestyle choices, whether it fits their sexual preferences, whether it makes them feel good, whether they feel empowered, and above all, it causes no emotional stress in their lives. This means that they don't have to answer to anyone except themselves, and it stifles any cut discussion or criticism about their beliefs, because unlike an external truth, which can be debated without attacking the individual or person holding that truth, because who knows that an external truth is bigger than all of us. So just because somebody questions what we believe, we don't have to feel personally attacked. They're attacking Jesus and they can go for it because he can look after himself. But an internal truth cannot be debated without attacking the individual or person holding to that truth. So when you question somebody who holds a personal truth, you immediately appear to attack that person. You get mired and ensnared in language like causing harm, violating personal integrity, discriminatory behavior, hate speech, and intolerance. Because when you question someone's internal truth, you're coming into con conflict with that person's concept of self-determination, which gives them the right to consider anything you might say as a personal attack and therefore totally unacceptable. A community that accepts internal truth as an individual right ends up having to accept almost anything as truth because to do otherwise might be discriminatory, intolerant or harmful to the individual. But unfortunately in the long term, this ends up dividing people rather than uniting people because there are only so many truths that people can take on board before they discover something that they don't believe is truth. Then they find themselves at odds with their community because their community will not allow a discussion that attacks an individual based on the internal truth that they believe. And uh, I won't go into some of the internal truths that have been touted as, as real in today's uh, communities and societies, but in the long term, they will cause immeasurable harm. As a faith community, we are called to accept a shared external truth that unites us, and that is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.47 said, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Today this appears to be something very hard to achieve. It's more like a choice, praise God or enjoy the goodwill of all the people but not both. We have different challenges to the early church, but the same choices. As we've seen throughout scripture, we can do community our way, or we can do it God's way. We can gnash our teeth and bemoan the circumstances we face. We can strive for victory in our own strength, or we can trust in God. And I think Paul sums it up best in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. And, uh, and this, this is probably one of Paul's most heartfelt letters. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. 
Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour. That is our position as a community. And so if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you've listened to this message and come to an uneasy feeling that you may have been seduced into falling into the trap of believing that you are the final authority on what you believe, I want to relieve you of that burden this morning. Because Jesus actually wants to come into all of our lives and especially those who do not know him from outside of us. Jesus wants us to have an internal dialogue, but he won't actually do that unless we invite him in and we have to invite him in from outside of ourselves. We have to recognize that the lordship of Jesus Christ comes with truths that he brings to us. They're not truths that we've dreamed up. They're not truths that necessarily suit us. Sometimes they do bring emotional stress. Sometimes we do have to fight to actually change what we believe to fit in line with what Jesus tells us we need to believe. And we actually have to be strong enough people to recognize that that's not a personal attack. Jesus isn't being discriminatory or trying to harm us. He actually has the best, better than anybody on this earth, intention for our lives. And so we have to humble ourselves and actually come to a conclusion that we are not the final arbiters of our faith or our life and that we need to take on board an external truth, the truth that Jesus wants to be our Lord and our Saviour. He wants to give us eternal life which comes from him and him alone. And so if you're online and you want, even if you just want to explore that line of thinking, I encourage you to press the raise hand button in the chat and a member of our leadership team will talk with you encourage you, give you information, hope, prayer, to enable you to actually break free of those shackles and take on board the truth of Christ. They will pray with you a prayer which will free your mind, encourage your spirit, and put you on the path to walking with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you recognize that you've become God, not hard to do in this world. And that somewhere along the way you've lost that understanding that Jesus is Lord of your life. Or you may never have had that understanding. Then I'd love to pray a prayer with you. I'd love to help you move on that path to accept Jesus as your external truth, as your Lord and your Savior, as your guiding light, as your benchmark, as your rock. Not something inside of you, not something you feel, not something you've dreamed up, but something or someone who has come to give you eternal life. Jesus wants to bring his life into us, into our circumstances, into our very being to transform us through the infilling of his Holy Spirit.
Can I ask everyone just to stand before we close? I told that breakfast story not so that you would sympathise with me for my broken eggs or that you would feel sorry for me because I've got anal about my breakfast (laughs) rituals. But just to show how we can actually compromise the enjoyment we have in life if we mindlessly do rituals that actually don't have an impact. Now, I will tell you that I have gone back to eating my toast the way I like it. But I do it with a realization that it just happens to be a convenient habit that I do. And that when it doesn't go right, I don't get bent out of shape about it. Because I I realize that it's a human habit that I have developed. It has no divine purpose It doesn't actually make my food taste better. It is actually a character flaw, if you like, which I can take or leave. But as long as I recognize it as that, it doesn't impede my enjoyment of life. And I think as as, as a community of Christians, we, we often get caught up in things like that. We want things done a certain way. We we think that the, the way we do things is, is best. And we don't want anybody else's advice on it because of what they know. And I think to understand how community works, to actually be fulfilled as a community, we need to take a step back from that. And, and, and scientifically speaking, just chill. Because in that moment, when we, when we actually let go of things, guess what? It enables God to move in. And so I want, I want us just to pray. I want, I want us to be humble this morning. And I believe that, that there are people here who can feel there's, a, there's a, a knotted up part of their life, a portion of, of who they are perhaps or, or what they are currently engaged in doing which is an impediment to their enjoyment of life. It may even appear good on the outside. It may even look healthy. But when you look at it, you recognize that it is something which is not part of what God wants to do in your life. And that's actually restricting God. Sometimes we have trouble getting our head around the idea that the good is the enemy of the best. Because we're liking the good, but we have to let go of that for God's best. So I want to pray right now. And I want you to pray with what's happening in your heart, in your spirit, with any impediment that you can see that you're prepared to actually discard this morning. And just pray that God gives us the insight and the courage to actually do that. Lord, see into our spirits, speak into our hearts. Be that whisper, that small voice that says, I am here. I am what you need and I am all you need. Let me work wonders and miracles in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit.
be free to accept my gift thank you Lord for being in my life for changing me for accepting me as who I am but loving me enough not to let me stay where you found me but to take me on to bring you glory in Jesus name Amen Thank you Carmen